Welcome to Hold Up, the podcast where we watch our favorite rom-coms and decide whether they hold up. I'm Carrie Gilbert. I'm Allison Gilbert. And this is a mini-sode. Um, this week, our bonus episode is an interview with Heidi Bushy. She is uh, a speaker, author, and relationship coach. Her first book, Relationship Ready, How I Stopped Fucking Randos and Started Cupcaking My Soul Bait, is available now on Amazon and Audible. Um, so we are going to play my interview with her for you. It's a great conversation. Um, we touch on a lot of different areas and Heidi is very open and honest about her journey. And I really appreciated that. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I do want to give you, um, a trigger and content warning at the top of the episode, because we do discuss addiction and alcoholism and overdose. So if any of those are triggers for you or things you just would rather not think about right now, um, this is not the episode for you. Um, but otherwise, please enjoy. Thank you so much for, um, for reaching out to us and um, wanting to come on the podcast. I'm excited to to chat about your company and your book and, and yeah. your, so, your whole kind of brand. Um, so, um, I guess like, let's just start there. We will, we will record kind of like a little intro where we kind of do your bio or whatever, but I'd love for you to sort of introduce yourself to to the listeners. Tell us a little bit about who you are. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I'm Heidi B. I'm a speaker, author, and relationship expert. And, you know, for me, um, I built my business and um, wrote a book around basically making sure that other women know that they're not alone if they're out there struggling with their love, dating, and relationship stuff. So like without going into it, well, this is going to be a long story. So buckle up. <laughs> okay. So, you know, for me, um, I got sober before I did this work. Not everyone has to do that. I personally would not have had a shot at it if I hadn't um, been sober. So I was about two years sober. And I was like living this very above board life. I mean, I wasn't that bad. You know, when I was drinking, I wasn't that you know, I was not like air quotes that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I evaded the occasional bill collector. Every once in a while, I didn't forward my mail when I moved. I mean, some shady behavior, you know, whatever. So when I say I got sober, I was living an above board lifestyle. I mean, like, look, I was going to work on time. I wasn't coming in hungover. I wasn't calling out hungover. You know, I was like paying my bills, you know, I was forwarding my mail when I moved. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm doing the deal, you know, except, but I was like, but I only had two vices left at at that stage because I quit smoking. I quit drinking, didn't do any drugs. So I'm like, you know, the only two vices left in my life are like parking illegally and fucking strangers. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Oh, no, you absolutely okay. are allowed to swear. Okay, yeah. So, you know, I like really leaned in hard to those two. I'm like parking all like I do what I want, you know. And, um, you know, and at the time I was in my mid 30s. I was off of freshly divorced. I got divorced a year before I got sober. So it was like under, you know, three years divorced. And I'm like, I do what I want, you know, and I, I had seen. I came of age, I was born in the 80s, I came of age in a time when like, you know, 20 when Sex in the City was on, 25, you know, and so I'm like, I'm sexually empowered, I do what I want. So I had made this arrangement with this guy who had a girlfriend at the time, I didn't really care, he didn't seem to care. And we were just like, oh, we're just going to get down. And I felt good about that in the moment that I made the decision. And after a couple months, um, he ended up, they broke up, and we continued like our thing. And then um, maybe a month after that, he came to me and he was like, Heidi, do you think that we could like, go to dinner and get down because we were like strictly getting down sure and um and I was like well I mean we could you know but like that would be dating and he was like I was clear with you from the beginning I do not want to date you I will never want to date you and like oh my god when I tell you 
the bottom fell yeah. out, I was devastated. I couldn't believe it that I had like basically signed up for this. And then when he confirmed what we had agreed two months earlier, I was just so shocked because in the moment I realized I had been lying to myself. I really, I don't know if I'd been lying to myself the whole time, but at some part in that journey, I had shifted out of, yeah, we're just getting down. Everybody's getting their needs satisfied right. to like hoping that I was really hoping that he was going to break up with her and date me. And I was going to air quotes win and like ride off into right. the sunset with this gem of a cheater, you know? <laughs> so I was like, hmm, did I really want him? Right. You know, knowing how he showed up in his life but today, I'm like, wow, would I have really wanted that relationship? But at the time it was just, it was mortifying. It was devastating. So I had a girlfriend who had done some work around love dating relationships and she, and I knew her through recovery. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a clean and sober, you know, I've been clean and sober since uh, September 10th, 2011. So I'm coming up on 10 years here. Wow. I had known this woman through recovery and um, she was like, I can help you do some work around men dating and relationships if you are willing to do some things. And I was like, well, what do you want? Right. Said, well, first of all, like you're obsessed with attention from men. So you need to do like a 30 day no contact with any guys, no DMing, no messaging, no having coffee, even guys that you think are friends. And I, when I tell you I was desperate, I couldn't believe it. The words came out of my mouth and I agreed to do what she asked. Mm -hmm. um, now I did that because she actually didn't say it was a 30 day. She said, you have to stop having one-on-one -on -one interaction with men while we do this. And I thought, oh, this is going to take, this is going to be like a 30 day dick detox, right? Like I'm just going right. to take a little, like I'm just going to take a little, a little vacay. Long break. Right. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Well, 11 months later, I had finally completed all the work. It took me an entire year to get through this stuff because I'm stubborn and slow and annoying and all these things. So um, it doesn't take everyone a year to get, you know, an entire year to get through this work. But um, when I finished it, my entire perspective on love, dating, relationships and the accessibility of those things to me had changed. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, you know, spending another nine months dating and then found the man who became my husband. And then a couple years after that, I thought, there are women who need to know that they're not alone when it comes to this stuff. Um, and they may not be like so lucky right. to be alcoholics or addicts in recovery and have access to some of these recovery oriented tools. And so then I decided to write a book about it. And the book is called Relationship Ready, How I Stopped Fucking Randos and Started Cupcaking My Soulmate. Um, and then in that space, I was like, I'm not going to wait for a publishing house to choose me. I'm going to choose myself. I'm going to self-publish this and put it out there. And um you know, other than the fact that there are a few typos I wish I would have caught, <laughs> generally been a very rewarding process, yeah. you know? So it's like my, my why, the core of my business is about the fact that like, look, I know how it feels to be alone, to feel isolated, to feel like everyone else out there is meeting their person, doing it right, having successful marriages. And like social media plays into that too, because we see everyone's highlight reel. And it's sure. just so devastating to, to feel like, how come everyone else gets this and I don't get it? And also how come I'm successful in my career and with my friendships? I'm like, what's wrong with me when it comes to like love, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so the book that I wrote is like half memoir and half how to. And every single time that I screamed into a sweater about like, I can't believe I'm writing this story about the fact that I moved to Denver because a guy offered to make me eggs. I'm like, there's somebody out there that needs to hear that. Right. You know, it's just, that's really my why. So that people know, women know that they're not alone if they've made crazy choices or stupid choices or embarrassing choices around their partners. And, and, um, and so the reality is like, if you like fucking randos and it's working for you, keep doing it. But I finally got to a place where it wasn't working for me anymore. And the only tools I had were like swiping left and swiping right. Sure. And uh, I needed some new tools. So it's like the, one of the things that I love about 
the message is like, there's no, there's literally no judgment. And I think that that's also why the stuff that's in the book applies regardless of your um, gender and sexual identity, because you'll find stuff in there that, that applies to you too. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I was thinking about. Um, and I'd love for you to expand on that because I mean, obviously like your stories focus on heteronormative, like man, woman relationships, because that's your experience. Um, but I do think that, you know, relationships are relationships are relationships and, Mm -hmm. you know, love and sex and all that is universal. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do you see like some of what you talk about sort of applying, you know, in non-heteronormative relationships? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to own that. And so I try to do that in the introduction of the book to say, look, this is my experience, you know, take what you likely to rest or, you know, pick up what makes sense for you and set aside the other stuff. But one of the places where it does get stickiest is when I talk about platonic friendships between men and women, right? So this was always a stumbling block for me. This was like a black hole of despair for me. I was the queen of, first of all, either being friends with my girlfriend's boyfriends, hoping that I would like win them over secretly, right? Which is like a shitty way to behave and a shitty way to feel about yourself. Sure. Like, I don't do that anymore, but I did when I was 20 and it felt like, you know, it didn't feel um, nefarious at the time, but looking back on it, I'm like, God, that was like a really, I wasn't being a great friend, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm like always hanging, my girlfriends were like, pretty, you know, I was very low maintenance. I had very low self-esteem and um, there were a lot of contributing factors to like my casualness around going out at night. Um, and I was friends with a lot of women who are high maintenance. So their boyfriends would come over to our house where we all live. And like, I would be drinking beers and doing shots and smoking cigarettes with them, being friends with them, right. hoping that one day they're going to turn to me and be like, you're the low maintenance girl in my dreams, right? right? Um, so it was a little um, like more subtle than just like, I'm like hitting on my, my girlfriend's boyfriends or whatever. Um, but I always saw myself putting, I always saw myself in a position to be hurt when I became, when I started being friends with men. Because inevitably, I was like settling to be friends with them because they weren't interested in me. And I just couldn't hear them say like, no, I don't want to date you. or I'm not interested in you or whatever. So I'm like basically putting myself, giving myself a front row seat by agreeing to just, okay, well, then let's just be friends. Right. So I'm giving myself a front row seat to watch them move on with someone else, which is like, come on, that's hard. You have, I feel like so many people have done that. Sure, absolutely. Even when we go back to our to our earliest like high school relationship, it doesn't work out. And we go, oh, let's just be friends. Partly because culture says we should be friends. We don't want to be a bitch. Like there's all these reasons that we just agree to be friends with somebody. And then we end up in so much pain when we have that like courtside seat to them moving on to the next person. Right, sure. Right. And so this can be really hard in, in, a, hetero, in a hetero and cisnormative relationship. It's really like, okay, don't be friends with men. But if you are, you know, in a different type of relationship, that can be more challenging to figure out like, well, okay, but I'm a woman who's interested in women. So does that mean I can't be friends with other women? I have to be friends with men or like, what does that mean? And at the end of the day, what it boils down to is we need to honor ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves about why we're being friends with someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So it's like, if you're being friends with that person, because you're like hoping that they're going to return the feelings that they're going to like return their crush then like you probably shouldn't be friends with them, right? Or if you're friends with somebody because you know that they have a crush on you mm-hmm. and you don't like them, but you just love that attention, you know that they're always going to be at your beck and call. You know that when you're nursing a hangover, they're going to come bring you ramen. Like, okay, <laughs> it's like, let's be honest about that, right? Because right? that also, I mean, it feels good and it's really human, but it's like when I am, I found for myself that when I was bogged down in these things that I thought were friendships, it was really just me manipulating somebody else. Right. Um, and 
it kept me from being available for people who really wanted to date me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, sure. So I think that that is one of the kind of stickiest places where it's hard to tell like what to do, but the more, you know, the, the kind of part of it is let's, let's be honest with ourselves about why we're entering these relationships and do what we can to honor our truths around who we are and how we want to feel. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, um, at, in your intro was that you kind of came of age around like sex mm-hmm. in the city and some of this, yeah, yeah. um, you know, like sex positive female empowerment. And you talk in the book about like movies and TV shows and, and rom-coms in, in particular, like the way they influenced your ideas around mm-hmm. boundaries. Mm-hmm. And obviously like yeah. the, beef of our podcast, the original sort of like mission of our podcast was sort of to dissect like the pop culture that we love. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Specifically so rom-coms and like, mm-hmm. how have they influenced us? What are the things that like still hold true? We still love. What are the things that we can take mm-hmm. carry with us? And what are the things mm-hmm. that like are beginning to look problematic? So yeah, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how like rom-coms influenced your idea of like what a healthy yeah. relationship looked like and how that's of changed. Of course. Well, I, I just love that you have this show so much for that reason, because there really is some nuance here, right? It's really easy to go like rom-coms are all problematic. They all suck. Or it's really easy to go like, this one's really great. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's like, there is some nuance. Like there has to be a little bit, I think of grace for like how we have evolved as a culture, how we have a new awareness of stuff that's problematic right. or why. And so I love that you have this show that like goes kind of, that doesn't just necessarily always throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I grew up watching rom-coms. I, you know, it's like, they just were, all, that was just always what was out there. Yeah. And I love them. Like, I, I, it's funny because I was trying to think about like, which ones were my favorite as I was coming on here. But it's like, I don't know. I feel like I watched all of the Meg Ryan ones, yeah. like Sleepless in Seattle and, you know, You've Got Mail. And then, you know, also like 13 Going on 30. And, you know, um, the one I was just thinking of, actually the one I was thinking of as I was, as I'm thinking about this question is Runaway Bride, right? Because I actually talk about that one in my book. Because in Runaway Bride, Julia Roberts is just so like willing to do whatever that she doesn't even know how she likes her eggs, right? Right. And one of the things that Richard Gere's character kind of calls her out on is like, can you even figure out how you like your eggs? And she's like, oh my God, I don't even know. Right. Um, And so, but I do think that rom-coms without like singling out a particular one, I think that they really taught me that like, boundaries were not existent mm-hmm. and that you know and that if I set a boundary it was actually a guy's job to say you know it's like so many rom-coms have like a plucky heroine it's not like a cool soap making business going on and she's busy and she's a lawyer and she's this and this and this and then this guy comes into her life who's like kind of a lovable bumbling you know idiot or whatever and and she's like I'm not interested and he's like well I'll show you right I'll send flowers to your work and I'll win over your family and they'll love me and it will undermine you know their ability to trust your judgment in me and like you know all of these things when we look deeper it's like oh yeah you know rom-coms really taught me that people were supposed that that if a man was really interested in me he was supposed to trample my boundaries right yeah and so it got very confusing as as I started to learn how to set boundaries you know or like that I guess they also kind of created this idea for me like uh, you're going to regret it. If you say no to that guy, like he's the best you got, you know, mm-hmm. he's the best option. You're going to end up having to chase him down. You're going to end up having to run through an airport to get that guy <laughs> back to come back to you. Right. Of course. In the rain, um, like it's always raining. Yeah, exactly. You're going to have to go through some kind of drama. Right. And I guess in some sense, the kind of the, as that kind of the, the end of that thought line of thought is like, I can't trust myself. Mm-hmm. 
that I can't really trust myself. And so I think that there is some of that underlying sense of that in some rom-coms where it's like, you know, she can't trust herself. She makes the decision. It's the wrong decision. She should have done it this way, whatever. So like, I'm not blaming any of my experiences on that, but I do think that rom-com shaped my experiences and my understanding of boundaries and what they meant. And so, you know, I particularly remember, like I, I dated this guy in my, I must've been like 20. I was the president of my sorority at the University of Pittsburgh. I was a Delta Zeta. He was the president of his fraternity. He was a Sigma Chi. And like, I just remember feeling like we were supposed to date. Right. And we did. We dated a couple of times and then we kind of broke up because he was seeing some, you know, it was very casual and he was seeing someone else. And when we broke up, I expected that he was like gonna, I was like, okay, when is he going to come knocking on right. the sorority door with all of his fraternity brothers? When are they going to get down on one knee and start singing? When are they going to send, like, and he didn't, right? right? And I was like, and then I was like, oh my God, why did I do that? That was the best I could have had. Why didn't, you know, whatever. And so um, I think it, I didn't really understand that when I set a boundary with somebody and they, and they honor it or respect it, it means that they actually are a grown up and they respect me. Right. You know, yeah. it took me a long time to get there on that one. I remember like, you know, in movies and in rom-coms there, there's always like some like big grand romantic, like kind of embarrassing mm-hmm. gesture. And I remember yeah. like having this thought, cause I was like, that's not a, that's, I don't like that. Like, I don't want that. But then like, does that mean there's something wrong with me? Or like, I, yeah. like, if I don't want that guy to do that, does that mean I don't like him? Like, right. you know, and it's just, there's like, I mean, when you're in your teen years and in your early twenties, it's there, you kind of have to like figure out what's real and what's not. Yeah. And then like, appreciate so the like, kind of ridiculousness of, of a movie. I love it. And, you know, one of the things that's hard about watching a lot of rom-coms as a teenager is that, like, we don't have a lot of discernment, right? Right. As adults, we go, oh, (laughs) this is real. This is not real. This is how it actually is. But as a teenager, you're just like, oh, that's that's how it is, right? right? And it's so funny. I was actually doing an interview yesterday, and I was talking when you were talking about Jerry Maguire. Yes. And one of the things in there, right, is Renee Zellweger is standing in front of Tom Cruise. They're both, they both look amazing, right? (laughs) She's She's begging him to love her. And she's saying, you know, you complete me. Right. And then boom, fireworks, they're upset, you know, whatever. And one of the things that's hard about that is like an iconic line, right? right. It's just this iconic moment, the cinematography, the, all of it, it's great. Right. But then like, as a, as a 19 year old, I'm hearing her say that and I'm going, oh, I'm, I'm, I should be, I should be doing that. Right. Like I should be looking for someone who I should be able to deliver this. And I, I am not lying when I tell you that guy that was a Sigma Chi, I told him that you complete me. And then I was like, a couple days later, like, where did that, where did that come from? Like, I wrote him a letter. Actually, I wrote him a little card and I had, had written that. And, oh my God. I am like, I'm turning red. Just thinking about <laughs> how mortified, how this is going to sound. Right? But like I wrote him a little card, like you complete me, right. like, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm sure I know that everybody up there at that house, at that fraternity house probably saw that card and had a laugh at my expense. Right. But, and then three or four days later, I was like, that sounds so familiar. I <laughs> like, where did I, then I was, <laughs> where did I get that? So original. And then I was like, not, then I was really dying when I realized it was from fucking Jerry Maguire. Yeah. I had like listed this kind of iconic line. So anyway, I guess the point is that, you know, I, I did not have a lot of discernment as I was a teenager watching rom-coms. And, and so they certainly shaped like how I thought relationships between men and women were supposed to look I very much you know I don't think I consciously realized it but you know I today I joke about being like where do I get these L sheets where like they come up to my boobs and right. they come up to his waist <laughs> right. like what where do I get those at you know whatever but um but yeah I mean I, I do love a good rom-com it's true I still love a good one you know I, I would be curious I haven't listened to this I don't know if you guys covered this one 
did you guys do an episode on the one with rebel wilson where it kind of like it takes away all of what is that called um, oh gosh what, what is that, that? like something romantic isn't it romantic or so, oh isn't it romantic? is that it i think that's what it's called we have not done that, that one yet we we did really do um they came together which is like mm. paul rudd and amy poehler which is also kind of like oh. a satire of rom-coms and that one's really fun yeah. because oh god it sort of that. like picks apart all of like the rom-com tropes while still yeah like obviously like having a love for rom-coms but like picking mm-hmm. apart sort of like the absurdity of them at the same time yes, and this uh this one with rebel wilson does the same thing where it is it's picking apart the trope and it's really good my actually actually my stepdaughter and i watched it which that is something that is so wild as i was thinking about coming on this show i'm like you know what you do not know what doesn't hold up until you have a kid that you're trying to share your favorite film with. Yes. <laughs> you're like oh shit we can't watch this right it off. No, we're done we're done I will literally never, this is like, <laughs> so like, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but I will never forget she was six or seven and her dad and I had just started dating and I picked her up from daycare or from like some after school thing. And they were watching part of Ace Ventura. They were, oh was, my God. Now that, I, now that I think about it, I know that there's a reason why they weren't watching the end. So I, you know, I hadn't seen it in 20 years right. because the last time I watched it was when I was. 16 right and it was 1996 and things were so different yeah. and we don't think about this stuff in the same way so I get her home to our the place that you know to my apartment and I'm like oh what were you doing at, at school there oh well we were watching the, we were watching part of Ace Ventura but we didn't get to finish it and I'm like oh well let's just throw it on and watch it and I'm like we got to the end and I, I was like we have to turn it off <laughs> she's like we have to turn it like, no. she's, she's like I don't think this is very nice I'm like this is not nice we should turn this right. off right now you yeah know, just because Oh God. So it's like, you don't even, we don't even realize how in some, sometimes we don't even realize how much things have changed. And I'm so grateful for our evolution in terms of how we think about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, and what's acceptable and what's not until you're trying to share your favorites, what you thought were your favorites. Right. With <laughs> yeah. But now 14 year old. Right. Yeah. We've definitely <laughs> had a couple where um, we are like, yeah, we love this movie. Like this is going to be a great conversation. And then we watch it and we're like, Oh god like that is not a movie I'm ever gonna watch again like and it's rare I mean for most I feel like we can find some joy in it but there is an occasional one where you're just like nope never watching that again like that that just hits totally different now it does it's so funny I kind of learned my lesson I started to like re-screen some if anything I wanted to show her I'm like I have to watch it again yeah first yeah I don't know just because like I wanted to be mindful about that stuff and um, one that I was glad held up, I felt like Empire Records held up. Okay. So I, I haven't watched that one in a, long, a long time, but oh, I loved good. it. I, I didn't find, I didn't, I mean, yes, I agree. In my twenties, I was like so obsessed yes. with Empire Records, a thousand percent. Um, and then another one that I thought was going to be great was um, 10 Things I Hate About You, iconic right. rom-com. Um, but honestly, we didn't even get past the first half hour. She's like, this is boring. And that guy oh. that's drawing a dick on the other guy, he's a douchebag. I was like, he is okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least she's like picking out the the moments. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that I love that you talk about is you um use the phrase platonic soulmates, which is a phrase we use on this podcast all the time. We talk about it all the time. Um, and so I'd love for you to kind of talk because your book talks about, I mean, the focus is romantic relationships, but I feel like you mm-hmm. do kind of like talk about how some of these tools work in all kinds of relationships and and how you're setting boundaries and how you're being fair to yourself and the other person regardless of whether it's 
romantic or platonic or, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. Um, so I'd love for you to sort of talk about like why platonic soulmates are important or why you kind of bring that up in the book. Oh, I think it's okay. First of all, I heard you say like 10 minutes ago that you read the book and I just have to say like, thank you very much for reading (laughs) it. You know, I've been in business for myself for a minute and I, you know, I, I self-published the book back in 2019, but honestly still, it just, my heart gets so full anytime anyone actually reads it. You're busy. You're running a podcast, <laughs> doing your regular life. You've got two 17 month old babies. I mean, thank you for taking this time. I truly appreciate it. So yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, we can't get, I actually think it's Esther Perel, who is like the most incredible relationship expert. She has a fantastic podcast. She's in the relationship space and I just love what she has to say. And she often talks about like, we cannot expect one person to fulfill all of our needs. And so in some ways, you know, we have to have these kind of platonic soulmates. And I guess part of it was just that like, I had these um, friends, these women who were friends in my life that like, honestly, when I did this, when I received the instruction from this woman that I was supposed to do no one-on-one time with men, she's like, look, if you're a mixed company, it's fine. You guys want to go out to dinner with, there's a bunch of people, that's totally fine. But she's like, you know, your kind of default is to just text the guy so that you can like get his attention, tell him the story, you know, get the chaos, all that going. Mm-hmm. So she's like, you just need to stop doing that. So in my life, like I, I had women in my atmosphere, but they were never kind of my go-tos to share really deep and intimate stuff with. Sure. I was really sharing that with guys in a way that was like kind of inappropriate. It wasn't inappropriate, but it was just like, it was manipulative because I was trying to get them to like, like me. Right. Um, so girls women and girls were really never my go-to and so because I took this entire year of not talking to guys I started to text women or call women when something was up you know and honestly I'll never forget this woman Marisa who took me through it she's still one of my best friends today she does shamanic healing work which is like so incredible uh she was taking me through this work we're like four months into it and I just was like I'd had it all I wanted to do was like flirt with some guys and I'm driving in the car and I just burst into tears and I pull over and I call her and I'm like this is so dumb. I just hate this so much. And like, am I just going to have to be friends with stupid women like you for the rest of my life? <laughs> and like, God. thank God that she's so gracious and kind. She's like, it's fine. You're going to be fine. I love you. You're fine. It's We're fine. Whatever. And like, to this day, we are incredible friends. Mm-hmm. And I just think that friends doesn't quite capture it. Right. right? There are like, we really are. She was in my life for so many. My life is so different today because she's part of it, mm-hmm. you know, and there are so many other, there are my, my girlfriend, Sandy, she is, you know, she was in my life for a period that was so important to me. And my life is different because she was in it. And there, uh, my girlfriend, Marissa, who I knew before I got sober, she got sober after me, her life is different. My life is different because we were in it. And so to me, it's like it's, that kind of soulmate relationship is available to us. Um, and so like the intentionality of the colliding of these personalities is I think on a soulmate level. And I think it's available. I think we kind of overlook it because we do kind of focus just on like my, my romantic partner mm-hmm. soulmate, as opposed to like all these other soulmates that exist in, in our world. Yeah. I love that. I think that that is mm. so important. And that was something that like, when I started dating my husband, I was like very honest with him about, and I was like, look, I've got like these people in my life that are really important to me. And like mm-hmm. that, in many ways, not that like, it's more important than my marriage, but like I, it holds a place in my life that is intimate. Um, and so I, I really appreciate like you pointing that out in the book and like kind of Mm -hmm. honoring that. 
Um, yeah, I think it's important. I, I think it flies under the radar. We don't yeah. acknowledge it as much as, as we can. And it's like, you know, to me, those, those soulmates are just, like I said, those people that like, I know we were connected for purpose right? and my life has changed as a consequence of that. And that feels like, it just feels like um, a good way to honor that relationship by calling it a, a soul level or a soulmate relationship. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that on this podcast a lot because it's so rarely like depicted in, in movies. Mm. Um, and because like we have this, you know, and because we're talking about rom-coms more often than not, like mm. we're so focused on the romantic relationship. So we love when we yeah. like read, when we talk about a movie and there's a fantastic, like platonic relationship, particularly like mm. a female friendship, like we really yes. feel like oh that's God. like important representation for like people to see. You know who is the queen of this, actually? I think it's Melissa McCarthy, because I love her in Sandra Bullock and Heat. Yes. That is absolutely. Also, I do feel like, I don't know, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me, but I kind of feel like Sandra Bullock can do no wrong, even having <laughs> been in a lot of rom-coms. I'm just, like, so obsessed with her. Um, And then uh, I was just thinking uh, this morning, I saw a trailer for Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer. Yes. This movie coming out. I just saw that. Like, I think that's going to be so good. Like Thunder, Thunder Squad or Yeah. I don't and... even remember what it was called. I was, it was kind of like one of those, like I was scrolling and like yeah. saw it, but didn't quite process it. Yeah. Yes. And uh, they're little, they're, um, they're like 20 year friendship in real life. And then in, on screen, it's portrayed as like, you know, they were friends growing up and now they come together to like fight baddies and, I don't know. I just think I agree with you. There are so many. Um, it's interesting that for the relevance of these really deep and meaningful relationships in our lives, we see so few representations right. of them in, in movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also like I would love for you to talk a little bit about your your addiction journey. And I thought like one mm-hmm. of the things that you talk about that's really interesting is you were like, so for me, it was alcoholism, but it was also just like excess and like men in excess Uh, and like whatever shopping, you know, like whatever it is and the way that that like influences then your relationships and the, then the men that you're choosing. And, and I, I think that that's really important. Again, I think that's something that's not often discussed. And I think that your willingness to be vulnerable and be honest about that is, is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of like, you know, talk a little bit about that journey. Honestly, it's really that journey, like, like I said, at the beginning of the show, like without that journey, there is no other, there is no other journey for me. And the longer that I stay sober and the longer I stay in recovery and, and do 12 step work, um, which is works for me, there are so many ways. I just always like to let people know, like, look, there's a million and one ways to stay sober. So however, if you are struggling with alcohol addiction, sex, uh, drugs, or sorry, yeah, uh, shopping, all the things like right. find something that works for you, right? There's no like a, you don't get a grade, you don't get any gold stars, you just get to have a, a life that's free of the obsession of whatever it is that you are consumed, you can't stop consuming, right? right? So um, the longer that I stay sober, the more I realize that like, I personally think of my addiction as just like, I'm kind of just addicted to more, like, <laughs> basically, more booze, more, uh, you know, more. So I'm trying to think of like, I didn't do a ton of hard drugs. I did, I dabbled in mushrooms. I did a little bit of ecstasy, but I didn't ever really get into cocaine or heroin because I knew, I think I just knew like this shit is going to go sideways so fast, right. you know? So, um, but like, I, I've definitely had, uh, I use food to change the way that I feel. I have shops to change the way that I feel. I have used men to change the way that I feel. So it's like really anything that will make me feel different is usually something that I like. And then more, 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 more is always better, you know? Uh, it's it's not, you know, I mean, that's how I think of it more. It's like, if one donut is good, a dozen donuts is probably best. And to this day, 
I still, I go to a donut place and I do not buy one donut because I'm like, that's so dumb. Why am I going to put one donut on my debit card? <laughs> right. That is crazy. Right. I'm doing this business establishment a disservice right. and costing them money. I always buy at least six donuts. And then my husband, my husband's a type one diabetic. So he's like, can you put these somewhere? Can these like live somewhere else? Can you put like, <laughs> right. you, you can't eat any. No one in our household likes donuts except for me. And every time I come home with them, I bring six to 12 donuts. <laughs> you just think like, somebody's going to eat right. them. No one's eating them except me. Anyway. <laughs> Um, you know, the thing that's interesting about my, my journey with alcoholism, like I, I'm, I'm going to try to keep this distinct because it is, a, it's a really long story for me, but like, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic household. My, my mom and dad were both alcoholics. We had, we had things that was not neglectful. We were, we were middle-class. We grew up in Iowa. Um, my dad's alcoholism was like the primary alcoholism. Mm-hmm. He was the one he drank during the day. It was like, his started to get scary earlier than my mom's did. Um, and you know, at what eventually happened was that when I was 17, my mom had a overdose she came she was out drinking she came home uh drunk took all the pills she could find in the house and took an overdose that nearly kills like that usually kills two-thirds of the people that um take it and she survived um and she was not to be lost uh, on the dramatics she did that on good friday and then was in icu until easter sunday and then uh (laughs) then went to uh, rehab for 28 days, uh, far, you know, and she, her journey to sobriety started that actually it's beautiful. She'll be celebrating 25 years of sobriety on Sunday. Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. And one of the things that was beautiful about watching her journey is she never ended up, she was able to find a path to sobriety that's been sustainable. She was not one of, there are plenty of people that like have a week sober and go drink again and then have a right. week sober and go drink again. And I think that that's eventually what happened with my dad. I think he really tried to quit drinking. Um, but then he couldn't, it was really, he was really sick. Um, and so, you know, she got sober in 1998 and in 2008, 10 years later, my dad drank himself to death. He died from his alcoholism. Wow. And honestly, I will tell you this. I, to this, I think this is still true. I, if I had not watched it happen with my own eyes, I do not think that I would have understand that you can do that, mm-hmm. that, that it's something that happened. Right. Like I, I just, it was, it's such a bizarre kind of denial space. Um, that I and I tell my parents story because it's a large part of my own story sure so um I'll finish the thought which is that you know to this day like even if you know occasionally I'll like go look at my dad's death certificate and be like well it doesn't say he drank right death, but it does say like a of the liver like all this stuff right so um so for a long time because well and here's the last piece of that which is that you know when we went to go clean out his house um, I was looking at his, he used to sit at a table and like, listen to a little radio and like smoke cigarettes and drink. And when I looked at the table without him there, I could see that he had worn away the varnish on the table in the shape of his forearm. Oh, wow. And it was an image that I will literally never forget yeah. because he would just sit there all day drinking vodka on the, you know, drinking vodka straight or vodka on the rocks and smoking cigarettes and listening to whatever radio programming was on. And, um, a stark image and so a couple yeah. of years later I drank I drank for three more years after I saw that because I really felt like well my drinking is not like my dad right like I have a you know it looks and different I went, right it looks different I'm like in a master's program I have my my four-year you know I got a degree from the University of Pittsburgh I'm in a master's program I'm, I'm married to a guy like I'm you know I'm doing all these things but like you know when I really look back on it it's like I was actually drinking like every single night mm-hmm. right especially during college because I was like Monday was bucket night Tuesday was super Tuesday Wednesday was some kind of special like karaoke Thursday was weekend Friday was weekend Saturday was weekend Sunday was weekend and for years I drank like that without even really realizing it so you know eventually what happened for me three years after my dad died I realized like 
I woke up one morning. I didn't have like a particularly crazy night out. I had gone out with a girlfriend of mine. We had like picked up a guy. <laughs> we were like going to go eat pizza at his house or something. We weren't going to like do him or anything, but we were just like flirting with this guy. Right. And uh, came home and then I woke up the next morning and just had this very stark realization that, like I was either going to get sober or I was going to drink myself to death. And that if I drank myself to death, it was going to look like sitting at my kitchen table alone, wearing, a, wearing the varnish away that I would probably be lucky. I would be lucky if I got into a bar fight and got stabbed. I would be lucky if I got into a fiery car crash. I would be lucky if, you know, like, and to think about those things as being a lucky way to right. die, I just was like, this is going to be really sad if I keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for three or four days, I didn't go anywhere. I just was like, I'm just not going anywhere. And then eventually, because I knew that 12 step had worked for my mom, I went to a, I went to a 12 step meeting. I hadn't showered in a week. I was chain smoking cigarettes. I, I happened to actually run into a guy I had been on a date with three weeks prior. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I had been, I write about it in the book. I had been so rude to him on our date because he was sober and drinking coffee. And I was oh, like, yeah. in my final days, I couldn't figure out why we were having coffee. And so I was like, whatever, see you later. And then of course, the first person I see, I finally like mustered up the gumption to go to this club that meeting. I haven't showered in five days. I'm changed. Like, of I'm course. Pissed. Yeah, I'm furious, right? I can't believe I have to do this. I walk up and he, and a lot of clubs that means will have someone outside as a greeter just to say like, Hey, welcome. Come on in. It's down the hall and to the right or whatever. So I walk up and I cannot believe my eyes that this guy is there. And he's like, Hey, welcome. How are you? And I'm like, how am I? I am at a fucking <laughs> AA meeting. How the fuck do you think right. I am? Like, oh, come on in, come on in, sit down. I'm like, Oh God, you know, and I couldn't go back there. Anyway, it's a very long story, but you know, I felt really I was conflicted about doing it. You know, the entire time that I was heading to that meeting, my whole body was screaming, like, don't fuck, don't do it. Don't take right. another step. Don't go down those stairs. Don't get in the car. You know, and um, today, like, my life is so much different because I was willing to be uncomfortable. And, you know, it, what I know about my disease of alcoholism is I, I always want to be at an 11. Right. Like, I always right. want to be, I, I do not handle discomfort well. Yeah. And um, for a long time, alcohol helped me to handle discomfort. And then it started to make everything really, really uncomfortable. And then that kind of early sobriety period is very, very challenging because it's like, okay, the thing that used to work, alcohol, no longer works. Right. Because it fucks up my life. I make bad decisions. I don't pay my bills. Like all kinds of bad shit happens when I do that. But now, like, I don't know how to make my life not uncomfortable because I don't have any tools yet. Like I haven't, haven't like really figured out how to like live my life without substances. So really that first three years is so hard because you're just trying to figure out like, how do I do life? Mm -hmm. Life doesn't stop. Right. People, you have to go to right. you have to go to weddings. You have to go to funerals. You have to finish your PhD. You have to, you know, whatever. You have to get your kids to preschool. You have to deal with COVID. So it's like, how do we build those tools? And so, you know, for me, twelve step recovery has really helped me learn how to live my life despite discomfort. And so I don't require substances to yeah to get through it anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, and yeah. thank you for coming to, to talk with me. I, I really oh enjoyed God. reading your book and I, um, I love kind of thinking about, you know, the intersection of like pop, pop culture and movies and TV and, mm. and how that affects our real lives. And so this, this mm. was kind of like a perfect opportunity to have that conversation. So thank you oh, so much. Thank you. Oh my God, you are so welcome. Thank you for sharing your platform with me and taking time out of your day. And you know what? It just made me think. Sandra Bullock, one of my faves. She has a great movie about rehab called 28 Days. Oh, yeah. Not to be confused. 
with 28 days later <laughs> yes my mom every time like every time we see like a movie poster for for 28 days my mom's like Sandra Bullock's in that zombie movie and I'm like no mom different movie like totally different movie <laughs> yeah and I haven't seen that one in a bit but I kind of remember thinking like that it seemed accurate so anyway I thank you so much for having me on the show I just love what you are doing thank and you I really appreciate you taking the time so it's been such a pleasure yeah thank you it's been a joy Thank you so much. Um, you can find Heidi on Instagram at Heidi B Coaching, um, and you can find her website at www.heidibcoaching.com. Also, you can find her book on Amazon and Audible. Um, we'll link to all those places in the show notes. Um, you can find us on Instagram at hold underscore up underscore pod and on Twitter at hold underscore up underscore podcast. Um, and we'll see you in a week um, when we watch, watch and discuss yesterday. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.